Welcome to Cigar City Radio, episode number 10. I'm your host, Randy Ojeda, and making the magic happen is Jason Solanez. Randy, jingle bells, Batman smells. Is that all you got? That's as bad as it gets on this episode. All right, all right. If you like Cigar City Radio, we hope you subscribe. Whether you're listening to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or direct from CigarCityManagement.com. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Cigar City Radio. Let us know what you think of the show. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Our guest on this episode is the Grammy-nominated, platinum-selling singer-songwriter Sean Mullins. He's best known for his single Lullaby, which hit number one on the Billboard Adult Top 40 charts. But he's been making music for several decades. He has a discography full of quality albums, and he fills rooms everywhere he goes. What I think is really cool about Sean Mullins is that he was an independent artist for almost 10 years before he got a hit song, before he had a record deal. I talk to artists all the time who get anxious about things not moving fast enough for them, but a career like Sean's is proof that sometimes, if you just keep making great music, you can get there. For tour dates and links, head over to seanmullins.com. So here it is, episode 10. Sean, I can safely say that you are the first platinum award-winning artist to come on our show. So thank you for taking the time out of your day to come and hang out with us. Well, not not a big deal. I'm glad to be here. Thanks Thanks for having me. Yeah. So that was, you know, your first record or was it, was it the first major release that you had? I'd say it, it was Soul's Core. Yeah. It was the first one that anyone knew about, but but I had a bunch of records before that and I I was an indie artist for about nine and a half years. So that was my eighth record that wow. I put out. I'd put out uh six studio records and two live records from, you know, 1989 until 1998. And then, uh, yeah, stuff kind of blew up with Soul's Core yeah. because of Lullaby. And then everyone kind of assumed that it was my first thing. Because, yeah, right, right. Because I was mostly playing little tiny places around, you know, little tip rooms and mm. tiny folk clubs or bars and, you know, house concerts, wherever mm. you could, you know. Well, I think that's what's really cool about, you know, the, the song Lullaby and by extension the record Soul's Core is that it seemed like an organic thing you know like it started with like local radio that was playing it in atlanta and then it grew to national radio and went from there it wasn't like you know especially around that time in the late 90s it was like everything was so calculated so like manufactured in a way that people just gravitated to this song like was that looking back on it especially i didn't really think that I didn't think about getting a record deal at that point. Let's put it that way. (laughs) And so it was interesting because all of a sudden, after like nine and a half years of not having really maybe a tiny bit of interest from one or two people that would come and see me when I'd go through New York, you know, Mm. but no kind of real interest because it just frankly wasn't hip. I mean, it just like when I first started shopping for deals, it was all about grunge. It was early nineties and 
you know, acoustic music wasn't really the thing, especially what I do with acoustic music. So there may have not been enough edge to what I did or something. I don't know. I, yeah. I never figured it out, but I didn't worry about it after a few years. I just kept rolling with it and making my own cheap records and getting out there and playing a bunch, you know, and to really touring hard. And, um, so yeah, it, 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 uh, I don't know if I'm answering your question or not. Oh no, you totally point. are. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. It's not. It's not a question. You know. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, but that's really cool. I, I love that. I mean, you, you just went from being this independent artist to like shoved onto tours with like the Backstreet Boys and Destiny's <laughs> Child. Like, was well, it- especially the radio shows is, is that's when I would do a lot of those. Yeah. I would get kind of you know they would use pe- people like me or Edwin McCain or. Um, What's the guy that had the, he's kind of a solo guy, but he's kind of half acoustic, half hip hop everlast. Oh yeah. Yeah. He would do stuff at that time too, where they would have, you know, these huge radio shows like the, the, the Z100 jingle ball or whatever. There's a bunch of them, but like, yeah. like well, some of the big ones is that one at Madison square gardens and. And so, you know, it's a, it's, it's big, it's a big yeah. crowd. And then they, they have, uh, you know, like NSYNC or Backstreet Boys or both at one of those. And, um, the only kind of Rudy stuff that was more like live musicians playing were the bare, bare naked ladies and mm. they were really good, but most of it was pretty, like you were saying, calculated yeah. and, you know, really great entertainment though. Yeah. I mean, the one of them i can't remember i get them confused and i i feel bad about that but i think it was backstreet boys came down from the ceiling (laughs) (laughs) with astronaut uh uniforms or costumes (laughs) i guess you'd call them costumes and they were rappelling down you know like that's how they entered and uh and my little thing was me and an acoustic guitar, like on the satellite stage out yeah. front, you know, just like while they're probably setting up, you know, the Behind fireworks yeah, for the yeah. stuff you know, yeah, that's yeah. coming after me. So you never came down from the rafters <laughs> no, in, a, in an no, astronaut suit? never did it. Oh, man. But I watched it. I saw it happen a few times. But uh, yeah, and that was a blast, though, man. I mean, I, I felt kind of old. I'll be honest. I was 29, and a lot of these guys were really young and not not that that's bad i just felt old i mean yeah. I, I felt old at 29 like doing shows with some of those folks because it was so different than what i w- was listening to and yeah i remember liking madonna and and cindy lopper and you know into the 80s people like whitney houston i mean there's a great artists that that are more pop related and i dig that stuff yeah but some of that stuff, I was really, by, you know, by the late 90s, if I was listening to other artists, it was probably, you know, someone like James McMurtry or, um, you know, uh, people that are, are really writing, you know, really from the uh, truthful place. Yeah. And it's not a, so much about the entertainment and the look of it and not even maybe the sound of it. Like sometimes it's just like the communication of the song. And so I got really into that, you know, by the time I was signed and I just didn't care one way or the other about getting signed when it, when it all kind of rolled in. So it was funny. Yeah. It's kind of like how you fall. Sometimes you fall into a relationship, like when you're not looking for one, you know, it's never like, you know, if you're going out there about the town, you'll never find anybody kind of thing. But that's interesting. 
it may have changed my attitude and made me, I mean, I'm sure the song was the, mo- it was the big thing. That was what everyone yeah. wanted was that song. Yeah, it was a number one hit, you know. Well, they, and they knew they could make it into that. Yeah. So it was already rolling and everyone had that feeling. And so there was a bidding war, but even still, the rest of that record's not really that way. There's a few band songs on it, but most of it's really acoustic driven and it's stories and... yeah. And not a lot of drum loops. I think that's the only song I use a drum loop on the yeah. whole record. That one even had a little bit more of a hip-hop type influence and in like the verses and stuff, I think. I will say this. Uh, influences that are obvious dra- drawn from hip-hop, um, the most obvious one for me is Michael Franti's early work with Spearhead. Yeah, right on. Uh, you know, the, the Home album was yeah, a really big record. one for me. Yeah. And, it, and his baritone... I could sing along and speak along and I loved what he talked about and I loved the positiveness of it and also that he was telling the truth. And so all that stuff and then, you know, Gil Scott Heron and um, I had a friend years and years ago turn me on to Gil Scott Heron who probably would have hated me. But <laughs> but I can say that I just love uh, that brutal honesty and the guts to, to say that stuff when he was saying it especially. Um, so yeah, I, I've, I've listened to a lot of really great artists that I think have influenced me, but, um, typically going back, um, uh, I'll occasionally hear something that's new that really blows me away, but usually I'm, I'm still discovering stuff. I don't know from the past, you know? Yeah, for sure. Well, there's so much out there yeah. and it's interesting cause like even on Spotify, you know, like you go to your page and you see like related artists, it'll have like sister Hazel and you right. know, Hootie and the blowfish, but like, especially your, your later records and especially my stupid heart, the most recent one, it's like, it's much more like Leonard Cohen, John Hyatt esque than it is, yeah, you thanks. know, <laughs> like Hootie and the blowfish, you know? Right. So are, are you in a place still where like, do people come out to the shows expecting to see the lullaby guy or has it changed where now your fans have kind of grown with you well i'm sure there's some people at every show that are in that position where they're like wow he doesn't look like he used to or (laughs) or um what is all this stuff i want to hear lullaby i'm sure that happens i don't really feel that so much from the audience but i think a lot of them are more they've grown with me i think because they're the audience isn't um each record, there's not like a big explosion of audience differences at my shows, mm-hmm. and it also doesn't go down. It kind of is. You have your base. It's kind yeah. of a thing. It's a base. Yeah. It's not huge. It's a. It's a. You know, several hundred people in every town I play typically. Yeah, but that's that's a great position to be in. You know, I mean, you can... I love it. It's always kind of where I wanted to be when in that beginning time, when I was out there on my own. That's what I dreamed of. Was like one day. I won't be playing to 10 people, you know, for tips. You know, one yeah. day it'll, if I keep doing this, by the time I'm an old guy, I can play the little theaters, you know. And that's yeah. really kind of still where I am. It's because I got even then that those were the appropriate spaces for, a, you know, like a storyteller, songwriter. You kind of want to be in a small enough setting that it feels right to everyone, kind of living room vibe or whatever the vibe is, but cozy and warm. And then, but it needs to fit enough people to pay you too. And so there's all kinds of little things you have to think about. Yeah, and, sure. Sure. But it's, it's just cool though, that you can, I mean, you could probably go to most towns and, and play a, a, a space like that, that yeah. works for you. Oh, but you know, to comment on sister Hazel, those guys and, and, uh, and the hoodie guys too. Um, we didn't do a lot together before I got signed actually, mm-hmm. 
But I think some people think we're all from the same basic scene of music. Right. Which they're really different. Like the Greenville, Columbia, South Carolina scenes are even different. Yeah, sure. Like Greenville was Edwin. Columbia was Hootie. And then, you know, you got um, Athens and Atlanta. Completely different music scenes. Very different. And so... And then, you know, the, his sister Hazel guys are from uh, Gainesville, Florida, mm-hmm. you know, and, and so, but I think because we were all from that basic South, yeah, there was a lump of all of us, even though none of our music really, I guess it's white guys playing acoustic guitars. <laughs> so you got that. <laughs> That's then, a pretty broad genre though. It, you know? <laughs> it is, it is, but I can see that. I can yeah. go, okay, uh, you know, especially me and Edwin, it was like, you know, right around the same time and. But um, but I'm friends with all those guys still. So it's it's there is a relative. uh, There's something that we share together, having done some touring together Mm -hmm. and uh, and maybe from all being from the same region. Yeah, maybe. And that's that may be why we're showing up on that together, because the music's really not that similar. I think it's it's based on the playlist algorithms and stuff. So people that like Hootie and the Blowfish might also like Sean Mullins. You know, I mean, that's yeah. I know. I, even though the music's different, you know, I've tried not to worry about it too much because I, <laughs> I, I would get really confused about that stuff. I would be like, at first, when I would see that on Spotify or Pandora, or there's other ones, right? There's mm-hmm. where and you Spotify, kinda, Apple Music and all like, that, like uh, music that's like this. Yeah, yeah. If you like this, you might also like this. Mm-hmm. So they would, if it was Sean Mullins, my friend pointed out that. Um, one of the other artists was uh, James Blunt, and I was like, "Okay, yeah. I can see that it's a singer songwriter." Yeah, that's cool. White guy with an acoustic guitar again. <laughs> um, British white guy though. British white guy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then there was another one. What was the other one? That oh, um, oh, I don't. Vertical know. Horizon. Vert- oh, okay. Oh, yeah. I can't yeah, think yeah. of his name right now. He's a really smart guitar player and, yeah. and singer songwriter. But that's another one that will pop up. That's. That's like if you like Sean Mullins, you might like. And I'm like, yeah. And when I listen to them, I like Vertical Horizon, and I'm not known for liking my own songs, especially <laughs> after I've recorded them. I don't really want to hear them anymore on on those recordings. I mm-hmm. just kind of move on. But so I love to hear other stuff, but I don't see many similarities. It's an algorithm, you know, and that's kind of the difference in music now is it used to be like, you know, you relied on the DJs. They'd play the stuff that they thought the people would like. And now it's the computers deciding, well, this is what you're going to like because we have all this data of you listening to this. You know, gotcha. it's very gotcha. weird. Yeah. Music well, industry is very weird cool. now. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting. It's a pioneer age and it's also scary and all that stuff. It's a, there's it's there's a lot that seems to be going away and at the same time there's so much new. Yeah. So it's interesting. I'm, it's definitely I'm mostly sitting back and watching right now. Yeah. Like I'm I'm kind of keeping it to shows and and uh I don't know live record next. I'm yeah. not really I don't know why I'd bother putting out another record real fast. Yeah. What's the hurry? It's true. <laughs> I mean, you can you can sit on a record for a while these days. I've yeah. wondered about releasing singles only, you know, like a song a month or a song, you know, because it. I, I always thought that albums were the thing, you know, because I grew up with that, you know. Yeah. But, well, I like the story that an album can tell. Yeah. You know, whether, even if it's not like a conceptual thing, but just, you know, this, the you can see the place where yeah. the artist was when they wrote it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and CDs could still do that in a way, even though you, you don't have to flip it. There was something, even in the time of flipping, 
you know, like let's say Revolver, you get to that first side and that moment that it takes to flip the record gives you this pause for thought, right? Yeah. yeah. And now there's the second side. So there was something really special about that. When CDs came along, I embraced that okay because it was like, wait, this is a lot easier, you know? Yeah. Although I kind of dig cassettes too. Um, and they still kind of sound good, even though there's that tape hiss in it. There's something that's kind of nice and, well, analog, you know? Yeah, yeah. But uh, now there's no tangible. There's nothing to hold on to anymore. And so that starts to get a little weird in a way, isn't it? I yeah. mean, if you just think about it that way, that the actual listening... You don't really have to have anything other than well, you need a, a you know a smartphone or a computer, but right. you don't need any uh, player or um, n- there's no product to play. Yeah, or or to buy, you know, <laughs> like there's you know people are streaming it or just you know it's a it's on a list with hundreds of other yeah. songs that you could listen to. And I know? feel really fortunate to have done as well as I did, you know, as a songwriter because now it's really hard. Yeah, sure, and it's. I'm still okay, because, yeah. but I had a worldwide huge hit, you know, it was like, how many people get that opportunity, you know, I was really Not lucky many. and really fortunate because I got tons of friends that, you know, yeah, they got a soundtrack here and there, or they've had a commercial years ago, or they, and you get some money here and there, but man, it's a struggle, you know, Yeah. so I feel that more than ever now with, with the streaming, but I, what I really wanted to communicate was that I feel really fortunate to have gotten to see the other side of it before it all kind of crashed you know that was kind of amazing because when i got signed it was all like you know woohoo yeah yeah late 90s you know mega, every all the labels were throwing mega dollars at yeah. everything and that's dried up now like that doesn't exist yeah you know? and do you find yourself writing more for others now than you because i know it's been it was like five years between your last couple records mm-hmm. so were you yeah during that time i did yeah, um, I know you worked with like the Zach Brown band. Yeah, I did some of that. And Matthew Sweet, I think too. And, yeah, and some other um, some other country artists that people just haven't heard yet. You know, from the mass level. And but I try to, you know, that's been a different thing for me. I uh, I love Nashville, and I always have loved it. You know, it's really different now. It's like it's really cool, and I, I liked it before when it wasn't what most people would think was a cool city. You know, okay, yeah. it was just kind of like it had a lot of grit, you know, and it still does. But there's it's it's really cleaning up in a lot of ways, and and it's uh, it's a nice place to go. It really is. But and the industry there is amazing, and so the songwriting scene there is, you know, everyone there's a songwriter. So. Uh, it's a weird thing. I'm not used to feeling competitive in in the art of songwriting and the craft of it. Mm. Even I don't feel competitive. Yeah, it's not part of what I'm doing. Well, so that whole thing's very competitive, and it's like more so than I ever experienced. And they're not even competitive with me. It's just you feel all of a sudden like you're in a competition. Yeah, to get it done quick and get it done because we got three hours. Let's write this song. Yeah, and, uh, that's got to be weird for creativity to just like lock yourselves in a room with somebody you maybe never met, and they say, "Hey, oftentimes yeah. write the song." You know, that's. I think that's why we're ending up. I mean, I hate. I don't really hate to say it. I think that's why a lot of popular country music that we're hearing on the radio, and possibly a lot of what's written in L.A. and New York, is done in a similar way for like the pop artists, but. I think there's a difference between what Linda Perry does, though, and like what the 
three guys sitting in a room for three hours in Nashville does mm. because of her background as a, being a real artist and kind of having that not perfect voice. You know, there's something really kind of like witchy about her sound in, in a cool way. So when you get three people in a Nashville or five sometimes or whatever it yeah, is, yeah. and yes, exactly, you don't know each other, and, and it's such an intimate thing. It's almost like you better have friendships with these people in a way to be able to share what you need to share to get to a good thing, to get to something that's really worth it. And yeah. I think occasionally stuff happens, of course, that slips through because they're great writers doing that just as well as there are not so great because there's some great songwriters there. There really are. And if the right couple of them get together sometimes it'll happen you know yeah yeah i've seen it to where it doesn't too where nothing happens with two great songwriters wow <laughs> it's like we want to go get some lunch you know <laughs> yeah yeah well it's gotta be interesting too because you know as you said like your music is very honest you are very much in your own writing do you struggle sometimes to write with somebody else's voice not really but i'm i learned to do it uh writing with other people that did it a lot more than me mm. i just kind of like opened up to that idea and my friend chuck cannon said that that's something he's really learned to do over the years is is write for that artist's voice yeah i was actually going to ask you about chuck cannon uh, how how did you mm. get started working with him well we met like around 99 or 2000, but I didn't remember it. Okay. <laughs> was I, it just that time, you know, yeah. time period where everything's oh, yeah. easy? <laughs> it was. It was It was that. And we, he opened a show for me in Nashville, and I, I didn't really remember it. And, and the reason why I even mentioned that is because it was, you know, eight years later or something. We were both playing this festival in Asheville, North Carolina, and we're staying at the same hotel. And, uh, we hooked up basically there and started talking and uh, I told him it was really nice to meet him. And he said, well, man, we met, but it was like 1999. I know you were in the middle of a bunch of stuff. And he goes, man, you gave me your phone number. And then I called you the next morning and you said, who's this? And I said, it's Chuck Cannon. And I was like, I don't know any Chuck Cannon. <laughs> oh, man. I was like, man, I'm really sorry, dude. I, I don't have any recollection of that. I said, it was crazy time. Like I, could barely keep up with my anything you know yeah so anyway we became friends we laughed about that and then uh we became friends first and then i went out to to his place in nashville which is really not in nashville at all it's out in the woods about 20 minutes uh, west and the foothills really beautiful not a bad place to and be just no you know like no no noises and so, yeah, it's a great place to ride and record. It's where yeah. we recorded the record, too. Oh, okay, right on. Yeah. Uh, and, he, and that was, did, did you start working with him on My Stupid Heart, or was it the previous record? Um, The Light You Up record, yeah. Okay. The okay. one before this is when we started riding a lot together, yeah. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's my main guy. I mean, when I think about presenting an idea to someone, he's the first person that I might run a new idea by. Although I have to be careful because if I'm not done with the song, he'll just go ahead and finish it for me. <laughs> really, he'll just do it real fast too. Yeah, yeah. And then you got you're like, damn man. You know, now <laughs> you I wanted got, some of now that. I got, yeah. And it's I've learned that it's not intended in any way. Although he just gets excited about something. Maybe that's cool. I mean, that's that's it's great. How, yeah, I love it. I mean, I've that's one thing about songwriting. I think is your ego has to be. Um, kind of checked you know like 
if for you sure. have because if you can't open that up a little bit or keep it down or whatever you want to however you want to look at it it's going to be hard to dig deep enough to get anything real you know yeah that's totally true hey you really gotta leave your uh leave your ego at the door when you... yeah and both ways like you can't be too fragile either you know you got to be strong true but you can't be like walking in there like i you know we're gonna do this my way yeah because it won't work <laughs> not <laughs> not co-writing yeah. you know yeah. And I think it's like that with any kind of co-writing. I would imagine comedy shows. Can you imagine when they've got like 10 writers or whatever? Oh, sure. Yeah. All of them with yeah. big egos that are really, really good. Everybody yeah. trying to push for their joke to mm-hmm. get in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I can imagine. Yeah, that would be rough. So speaking of like comedy shows, actually, I was pretty young when Lullaby came out. Yeah. Um, I remember like, you know, listening to it in the car or whatever. But it wasn't until years later I was watching the show Scrubs and the mm-hmm. song All in My Head is mm-hmm. used in one of the episodes. Right. And I was like, man, this song's awesome. Like, I need to figure out who this is. And that's when I looked up and I realized, oh, this is the same guy that wrote Lullaby, blah, blah. It wasn't until live at the Variety Playhouse, mm-hmm. that live record, where I was like, OK, this guy this guy can rock you know hearing the songs again live the Mm -hmm. older songs and then your newer songs it's Mm -hmm. like there's such a different energy it's interesting because i think on this record i did uh i came closer to what happens in a live performance Mm -hmm. i think i know what you're talking about is what i'm trying to say yeah it's a certain energy that's captured you know yeah and i've seen it with a few other artists a lot of people you don't really notice that much of a difference or there are major differences, but they're not in the difference of that, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Of attitude or whatever. Well, yeah, um, and especially like compared to the the '90s stuff that you had, where it had sort of this polished production, this sort of '90s sheen that they were putting mm-hmm. on a lot of these records. Right. You know, to hear it a little grittier, a little grungier mm-hmm. with just you and a guitar or mm-hmm. you with a backing band is a totally different experience. Yeah. yeah. yeah thanks. Um, kind of for years now, we've recorded differently, where we where we're kind of cutting stuff as live as possible. But it is different. It's a different when you don't have an audience. Hmm. Um, there's a famous story about Stipe uh, when they were making one of their records. He had uh, a couple of friends do big cutouts of people out of wood and paint them up, kind of cartoon people. And they he could sing to them, and it helped him kind of like, you know, it sounds a little weird, but at the same time, I go, well, that kind of makes sense because if you think you're performing and you're on, you know, you got to be on because the whole studio process is so weird anyway. You know, when I was in the Thorns with mm-hmm. that band. Yeah, that was the one with Matthew Sweet and, right, uh, and Pete Droge. Pete Droge, And yeah. Brendan O'Brien produced that record. And we were talking a lot about headphones and how we really wanted to go as old school as possible with the kind of vocal arrangements and how they were even mic'd. Like, hey, can we all get around one mic? Well, you better you better not go flat or sharp, you know, because <laughs> yeah, and yeah, you won't be able to change it later. We did yeah. some of it that way, but then some of it it was like you sing the note, and then the guy other guy comes in and sings the same note, and the other guy comes in and sings the same note. Now you've got three voices doing the same part, and then you do go to the next harmony part and do that. Yeah, and so that was kind of a different way of doing it, but. Yeah, that's my bass player. That's all good. We're going to wrap up here shortly. I just yeah. wanted to ask you before we go, um, so what's next for Sean Mullins? I mean, it's been a 
about a year since the last record. Is there yeah. a new, another one coming? Uh, I'm writing. You know, I'm always trying to write. I can't say that that I've got a lot going right now with writing because I'm I'm building a little cabin in the woods. Sweet. In, in little, Atlanta, are you, in, do you still live in Atlanta? Yeah, uh, I live outside of Atlanta. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's in the mountains, and um, so it's it's a great little place, and and that's been taking up some of my creative energy as being out there in the forest. But, uh, sounds awesome. It is. It's good for me because it, it'll be a good place to have a you know place for writing and maybe even making records one day. Yeah. Well, I feel like the world's going so crazy. Like all I really want is my own cabin in the woods that right. I can escape from everybody else. Yeah. You know? <laughs> that's, so that's my thinking. <laughs> that's really cool. I guess it's white guys playing acoustic guitars.